0: again value life then if you value life then you can begin to understand and appreciate as you move and as you begin to have to think about death and we're doing it with people who either have very serious illness or sometimes people who just want to talk about the things that matter most to them I did it with one member and she said what matters most to me is my family and I just took pictures of all her grandkids all of her kids and she'll talk forever about it. so again we're trying to be holistic in a way that is just not about dying, although we do want people to have end-of-life care, but we also want to value living in what matters most. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We were able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lillian Endowments.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm Matt Burke, the Education Director and the Northeast Director for the Center for Congregations. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Ben Tapper. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. Good to be here. Good to have you here. And Ben is the Associate for Resource Consulting out of our Indianapolis office. So this episode is going to be the episode that no one listens to because we're going to talk about death. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Well said. So if you hear that and you turn it off, we understand. But uh, that's actually one of the points of of this episode and some of the conversation that we're going to have later on with our guest. But we are going to talk about essentially planning ahead for end of life. And it's not a topic that's popular. It's not one that people really like to talk about. My wife and I had a conversation with someone at a local hospital, and I'll talk about that maybe a little bit later on. About planning for our end of life care or end of life possibilities, but it's such an important concept and topic. Ben, have you actually had this pop up at all in your work at the center?
2: You know, I can't think of any cases I've had as a research consultant or any grants that I've reviewed that have dealt with end of life planning. So surprisingly, no, though, you know, I know that. We have worked as an organization to curate resources for the Congregational Resource Guide, you know, around death and dying. But day to day, it doesn't come up too frequently in the work that I do and with the congregations that I'm interacting with.
1: Yeah, the same is true here. And honestly, one of the only reasons that it's on my radar is because we brought in the director of chaplaincy from Parkview Health up here in northeast Indiana, and he covered a whole host of things about basically just caring for the sick, the grieving and the dying and did a long term learning series for us. And so that kind of put it on my radar. I mean, you know, you go to the doctor and they ask, do you have a living will or do you have, you know, power of attorney? or healthcare proxy, things like that. And, you know, I vaguely understood what those were, but it wasn't really until hearing Patrick Rieke talk about these things that I began to understand the importance of it. And then it kind of got my antenna up about it. And as I began to listen to more people and talking about these things, I don't know that most of us realize the difficulties that can crop up if these things don't exist or if you don't have plans for your end of life care.
2: I'm really glad that this was on your radar and is on your radar because it's important. You know, I'll mention later in the podcast, but I spent some time working as a chaplain at a level one trauma center here in Indy. And that was where I learned about after death planning and got to see kind of how it plays out when it's in place and what happens when it's not in place. And to your point, it's something that often flies way too far below the radar, but is extraordinarily important to consider and to think about. So I'm glad that you you had the foresight to bring this up and to invite Reverend Gray and to talk about it.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that the Center for Congregations does is we are reactive about what people ask us about, and then we do research and find things. But you can kind of view this episode as your mom telling you to eat your vegetables. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is maybe something you haven't thought about, something that you haven't talked about, but congregations should be places where we are overseeing life transitions and whether that's You know, pregnancy, birth, kids going to school, graduating, all of those kinds of things, and death is one of those things. And we don't like to think about it and talk about it, but if a congregation is really going to care for the people in it, then I think the leadership needs to have this on the radar and be thinking about end-of-life care. And one of the great things that you'll hear in the interview is the program that they set up in their congregation and the focus that they have on it. One of my hopes
2: for those that are listening to this episode is that you're able to walk away with some sort of imagination about how your congregation might begin having these conversations. And I think Reverend Gray brings up some good tips and and advice along the way as we're having the conversation that we have.
1: Yeah, and I really want you to listen as well. I think that her story and the story of their congregation paints a vivid example of how you can get something done in your congregation And so just listen to the structure of how it took place, because I think not only is this an important conversation about planning ahead for end-of-life care, but I think it's also a really interesting example of how a congregation creates a focus, and then that focus spreads throughout the entire congregation. So I just want to front load that so you're thinking about that and have that lens as you're listening to the interview.
2: Absolutely. And so now that you've got that framework, go ahead and listen to this conversation with Reverend Sabrina Gray.
1: All right. Welcome back. And uh, we're glad to have with us today, Reverend Sabrina Gray, who's at Bethel AME in Boston, Massachusetts. She's also an instructor at Roxbury Community College and teaches early learning courses. So thanks so much for being here with us, Reverend Gray.
0: Matt and Ben, it's just great to be here. I'm glad to be on the podcast talking about the ministry that we have at Bethel AME Church, planning ahead. Uh, My pastors are Ray and Gloria White-Hammond, And I'm also the coordinator for a ministry that we have at Bethel called Planning Ahead. And Planning Ahead is basically end-of-life care. And we've been doing, I guess, Planning Ahead for the last six years. This is our sixth year. And six years ago, a woman by the name of Rosemary Lloyd approached our pastors, who are both physicians as well, and asked her if she could introduce something to our church called The Conversation Project. And The Conversation Project is a small booklet that asked some questions about planning for your end of life care. And we're predominantly African-American church, although we do have several different cultures at our church. But our pastor said, well, you know, a lot of times in our culture, African-American culture, death is not talked about a lot. A lot of people don't like to talk about death. And they said, okay, let's try it and see. Sure enough, Rosemary uh, came one evening. They made the announcement in church. And we thought 10, 12 people would show up. Over 40 people showed up, which again gave our pastors as well as Rosemary Lloyd some indication that people, even though they may not talk about it a lot, are concerned and want to begin to think about things like that. So therefore, planning ahead was birthed. And again, we're in our sixth year. We're actually doing it on virtually now online as well. We used to do it in person, but now we're doing it online. And it was a process. We had to normalize, if you will, conversing or talking about death because most people don't want to talk about it. And I can attest that, and I can't speak for all African-Americans, nor am I trying to, but I found that a lot of people, African-Americans, don't necessarily want to talk about it. And I guess I shouldn't say just African-Americans. A lot of people just don't like to talk about it. It's a difficult subject to talk about. But the 40 people showed us it was important enough that we needed to do something about it to help people be more comfortable. So part of our ministry was normalizing the conversation. And our pastors began to preach sermons about it. And I was a person who had to sign up people to come to our planning ahead sessions. And at the very beginning, I remember I'd walk at the end of church, and I'd walk around speaking to folks. And I'd actually hear people say, here comes the death lady. And they'd go to another aisle, you know, kidding. But people really had a hard time sort of dealing with it. So part of it was really helping people to normalize. We started out with very small groups, maybe two or three people, just really helping them to just begin to talk about it. And we found even as the pastors and as a minister, myself, we had to deal with it before we could ask the congregants to. It was crucial. And so therefore our pastors and myself and ministerial staff, went through the whole plan ahead session we usually do three sessions when we met face to face the first one was to do the conversation project which really gets you begin talking about it and then at the end of it it helps you begin to give you tools to talk with family and friends because it's one thing you know the statistics say a lot of people have thought about it even a lot of people have maybe even talked about it but very few people have either shared it with other people or put their thoughts about end of life care in writing. So we did the conversation project and then our second session is what we use the five wishes. And this helps us to choose a healthcare proxy. And it also helps us make some medical healthcare decisions. There are questions that ask you, how do you wanna be treated? What do you want people to do to make you feel comfortable? And then the last one is about the fifth, which is about what you want people to know that you love them, that you're not afraid to die, that please forgive me of anything that I've done, I've forgiven you. And then you actually have it witnessed. Two people have to sign it as a witness. And then our third session was usually just bringing people together. Again, this was when we had it face to face and we just ate, we just fellowship and talked. And we began to, again, normalize the conversation. We could ask people, you know, well, what are your thoughts about it? And people, Felt comfortable, again, talking with others about it. The way we do it virtually online now is we do the conversation project online. We have a, a online version of it where we walk people through that, as well as the five wishes. So that's sort of, you know, where we are and what Plan Ahead is all about.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I love the story and how you framed it. And it really just illustrates how... Just about any kind of project can be successful in a congregation when you see a need, when you're united in addressing that need, and the leadership walk through the process of learning about that need together and incorporating it not only in a small group setting, but also into the sermons and into the life of the church. So what a cool picture of just how something like that can be incorporated. I did have a specific question around, you said that it took some time, but you were able to kind of normalize conversations around death and dying. I'm curious how long that took until from the very beginning when it was a lot of reluctance and people avoiding you because they were calling you the death lady to where it really kind of felt like, okay, we can actually have these conversations and people began to feel comfortable about talking about death and dying.
0: Well, it's still a process. I have one lady right now who went to plain ahead three years ago. And every once in a while, when I see her, she said, she said, Reverend I just can't do it. I just, I'm not able to do it. I said, that's all right. I said, keep working at it. Is there anything I can do to help you? So to understand that it is a process, but I would say it took a couple of years for us really. And I had to talk to people individually, you know, and then we did small groups. And once people saw that there were other people that had hesitancies or other people that had sometimes, and that's what the small groups in the sessions do, they really sort of help people. Oh, I had that question too. And no question is silly or no question is, is stupid. So we really encourage people to ask the questions. But again, I would say, understand that it is a process. What we also began to do, something we did sort of unique at Bethel, is once people did the plan ahead session, we asked them to do a little short video that talked about, hey, I didn't want to do this, but I did it and it worked and I'm doing the process now. So that was a big thing. So that means once people sort of got into it and realized, oh, this is really important, I really need to do that and it's okay to talk about this, we asked them to do a short video. We showed it during church, You know, during announcement time, like a 30 second video, it wasn't long, But there were people that they knew, you know, their peers or the congregants. And that really helped. We had everywhere. And what we also found is that when we first started, there was only sort of one demographic that really sort of came to the sessions. And that was women over 65. That was it. Those are basically the people who came to our sessions. And we said, okay, this doesn't work because anyone 18 years or older needs to have or needs to begin to think about uh, end-of-life plan and some young adults say what i don't what have to worry about but well, we asked them do you know people your age that have passed on they said yeah that's just it so then we tweaked our sessions to meet the needs of young adults also the men were missing so we tweaked it we have men presenters we call them care navigators that actually run the sessions we have men that do them we have young adults so with that we feel like in our congregations about 450. 500, I could say safely at least 300. I would say after this year, because we've had virtual sessions at the beginning in the spring, at least 350 members of our church have had something, have had some aspect of planning ahead.
2: Reverend Gray, I had the privilege of working part time as a chaplain at a level one trauma center here in Indianapolis. And through that work, you know, I was in a lot of end of life situations. And so the importance of having an, a plan for end-of-life care feels pretty obvious to me because I've seen what happens when that's not in place and how stressful that is for the families. And I also recognize, even as I hear you talking, that though I've seen it and I've made a metal note to myself probably 20 times to make one for myself, I'm realizing as I'm sitting here, I still have not done it yet, right? And so I recognize like that there are barriers to getting there, right? And so I understand that. But I'm wondering if you could explain from your perspective to our listeners that maybe just aren't even aware that this is a thing, hadn't even thought about it. This is the first time they're hearing about it. From what you've heard and what you've experienced, what makes end-of-life planning so important?
0: Well, when we talk to people, you know, first of all, we have to meet them where they're at. As I told you, young lady who still can't do it. And all of our care navigators really sort of realize that, that we can present the sessions. And we try to be very sensitive that I've had sessions where, you know, everybody introduces themselves. And as we jump into it and start, I see some people just sort of withdrawing and just saying, okay, this is not, and we give them that space. We give them that space. So I think, you know, our, the sermons and the way we present it is Jesus himself made a plan. You know, if he made a plan, we need to make one as well. But then we also say it's more than just for yourself. Please think about your family. Please think about your family. If you don't have a plan, what are they gonna do? They don't know what to do. And it just gives you peace. It gives, of course, you're gonna be gone, so <laughs> you're not gonna be there, but right. it certainly gives your family. And I don't know about you, but I've been to plenty of funerals where I could taste and feel and see the tension between family members. I've counseled with enough people, at, you know, grieving and going through that. I have a lady right now I just talked to on the phone last night. She's doing court. She's trying to figure out how to work these things through. And I think we owe it to our loved ones. We owe it to ourselves as well as our loved ones to not leave them here wondering or leave them with open questions, even if, and I've had couples that have disagreed on how they want it to be done. I said, you know, again, it's your end of life care. And we say that's very important. You're picking a healthcare proxy. Because you have to pick someone who's going to support what you want, even if friends and family want something different. So yeah. I think part of it is owning owning what you want. And sometimes before you can talk to anybody else, you have to deal with it yourself. So I think that's the important part, too, is for you to understand where you're at. And once you do, then begin to share it with others. But I think it's to help yourself as well as your loved ones.
2: I think it's hard to imagine how difficult those moments are for your loved ones unless you have been a fly on the wall in them or experienced them yourself, right? Because grieving is hard enough as is. Processing traumatic experience is hard enough as is, let alone when you have disagreements on what should happen, right? What kind of care should they receive? Should they receive nutrition or not? Should they be intubated or not? Do they want to be on a ventilator? Like, All that stuff, I've seen it, you've seen it cause fights, cause breakdowns, cause conflict that lasts on top of the pain of having to grieve what's happening. You know, it's hard to be aware of that unless you've had to go through it.
0: Yeah, and just really getting people to understand that it's crucial. Something else that we do to help to show the importance in our session too, when we do our five wishes, we actually show a video of this on Netflix. And anybody can go, if you have Netflix, I encourage you to go. And see it, the name of it is Extremis E X T R E M I S. And it's a documentary, only 24 minutes long, so you don't have to sit in front of the television the whole time. But Dr. Zimmer, who is an ICU physician in the Oakland Bay area, she took real people. So there are no actors, there are no actors. These are real, and they are African American people who had people in the ICU and they were dying. And you saw what the family went through that did not plan. What the family went through—I mean, it was raw. It's raw. Yeah. It really is. They are not actors. They're not making it up. And they tell you at the end what happened to the people in the end. But most of the time, after people see that, they say, "Okay, I got to do this." Again, just the importance. Sometimes the visuals really sort of help. You know, we could talk all day, but to actually see and then you know, African American people see people look like us. You know that what the struggle they went through. I mean, the pain you felt for them. Then you saw other people in the ICU unit, too, that were struggling with it, people who were dying. So it's pretty raw, but it's true and it's real. So I think that sort of helps people to see the importance.
1: Yeah, and I'm curious, too, that, you know, there are the cases where you create your end-of-life plan and you have a healthcare proxy in that one situation where... You know, you might be alive but are unable to make decisions for yourself. Those things can happen, but there are many cases where that doesn't happen, but it's still a good idea to have the plan just in case. But I am also curious about how these things, the conversation project, the five questions, and just the other sessions that you do, what do you find about how that changes people's outlook and their sense of living life now? What do you see? How does talking about death so openly and thinking about end of life so much how does that change people presently as they are now?
0: Well, one thing that a lot of the planning ahead and the conversation project, Willis Five, has really sort of taught us is that we have to minister to people living too. So we actually try, so, you know, otherwise just become you do become like the deaf people, this is the death ministry, you know? So we really began to talk to people about things that matter to them most. And once people can get sort of, Begin to look at what things really sort of matter to them most. They're able to sort of prioritize some things. We found that then we're able to move into since this matters so much to you, you know, have you thought about, you know, what will happen when you maybe be in that state of transition? So we try to also help people to think about what matters to them most. We have a uh, we call it an extension of planning ahead. It's called Photo Voice that we're doing at the church now and we have someone, a medical friend of ours who's coming in and she's really encouraging people to talk about those things that really do matter most. And she's putting together a photo and a narrative. She's doing an interview just so people can really sort of, again, value life. And then if you value life, then you can begin to understand and appreciate as you move and as you begin to have to think about death. So photo voice is our new thing that we're doing now and we're doing it with people who either have very serious illness or sometimes people just want to talk about the things that matter most of them. I did it with one member and she said what matters most to me is my family and I just took pictures of all her grandkids all of her kids and she'll talk forever about them. So again we're trying to be holistic in a way that it's just not about dying although we do want people to have end-of-life care, but we also want to value living and what matters most.
1: Yeah, and it strikes me that what you're doing is creating a culture that by thinking about end-of-life, you're celebrating life also, and what's important now, what will continue to be important, and just a celebratory understanding of what it means to be alive with those things that are most important to you. That's a really, really great ministry.
2: Has the urgency around these conversations shifted or changed anyway during the pandemic?
1: We did a couple
0: of sessions back in the spring. And first of all, our sessions, we try not to have any more than, let's say, eight to 10 people because we don't want, because we usually to do breakout rooms from there. And we don't want people to be so overwhelmed that by the numbers that they don't share, or whatever. So we did a session in February, which was with a family. And when I said a family, there was one of our care navigators wanted to do it with her family. She invited all 30 of them. And I think 25 showed up. So we've done it with families, all the way from children to adults. So that was our first thing we did a couple in March we did a couple in April. So we really did. We had like five sessions in the spring and they were all online. They were virtual. And I would say in all of them, we had at least eight to 10 people, which is, you know, for us, it was good we're planning on doing a couple in the fall as well. So I began to get a lot of people when the pandemic first came, I got a lot of emails and said, you know, when's your next session of planning ahead? You know, and I've had some people like who did it. We started in what, 2015 and maybe they did in 2015 or 16. They said, I need to refresh When are you going to do it again? I need to go back and look at this. So I had several people who did that. In fact, I think in our March session, Half of it was people who had already done it before, but because they had not finished it or they needed to think about it some more, people come back and do refreshers. And so I would say that it is still a little bit more, but again, it's a hard subject to talk about, even if it's maybe more prevalent today because of the virus and all. Hard subject, but yeah, there are people who are thinking about it more and more
2: that makes sense and that's kind of what i imagined happening especially the way that the pandemic has affected african american communities in general follow up to that you know when i was working in the hospital it wasn't under you know during a pandemic right and so there were certain conversations you could have you had like 5 10 sometimes 15 family members in the waiting room having these discussions at once so just in terms of the actual practical planning that needs to take place and the decisions or the options of decisions has any of that shifted because of the pandemic or are the options about the same as they were maybe two or three years ago?
0: Uh, they're basically the same. And the reason why I say that, something else that we add with our planning ahead is usually after you've done your sessions, uh, your uh, conversation project and the five wishes, we also invite a lawyer in to talk about estate planning and a funeral director in to talk about you know funerals. And we invite people to come to that. And it's all virtual. We have the funeral director, and they can ask questions, and they have handouts, you know, things that people can download, and all that, which has really been a big help too. Because most people said, "Okay, okay, okay, I got my plan now. How do I plan it? You know, how do I plan a funeral? I mean, how much does it cost?" The funeral director also talked about how you can have a green funeral, you know, cremation, you know, that option. And I have to tell you this story about cremation because, you know, when I did my planning ahead. and my husband and I did it, got our witnesses to sign it. And then we said we got to share it with the kids. You know, so we're a blended family. I have five children. My husband has three. And my kids only get home like once a year all together. And that's usually at Christmas time. I said, well, I got to talk about it at Christmas. My husband said, don't talk about it at Christmas. You're going to ruin Christmas talking about death. I said, but this is the only time the kids come home. So, you know, I let Christmas pass. And right before everyone left, you know, I had told them back in September, when you come home, for Christmas, you know, I want to talk to you about my end of life. I said, Mommy, what's the matter? You're dying. I said, no, but that's just it. I don't want to wait till I am, and it's too late. So when they came home, I brought them up in my office, and I said, okay, this is my plan. You know, I told them I wanted to be cremated, and one of my daughters, the one who I knew would, she got out of the room, and she ran out the room crying, and, you know, everybody looked at each other and said, yeah, we knew that she was, but then that's the one daughter that came back, and she's done planning ahead herself. So she said, mommy, it was just hard for me to realize that one day you're not going to be here. I said, well, that's reality. And she's done it. So I sort of say that. They said, you want to be cremated? I said, yeah, because I don't want to see money sitting in the ground. So I'll put it like that. And I've sort of, I told them I want a memorial service. And the funeral director said, don't you want people to have closure? Sometimes people need to see you to have closure. I said, okay, we're going to do this. You can put me in the funeral home with one of those disposable coffins, and people can come by the funeral home if they need to see me. If they don't, they can just come to the memorial. So again, just sort of thinking through those particular things and, you know, sharing them. And yeah, I got some people said, no, mama, we don't. I said, but this is my death. I get to plan it, and this is what I want. I had to pick healthcare practices that I know was going to carry it out, even if other people didn't like it. So, you know, more and more people are looking at cremation. Now, I do know that. So that has switched. That has, I've seen a change in that. Because the field director also told us, you know, a lot of cities are running out of, you know, running out of space. You know, running out of cemetery space. So there's a lot of things that they told us to stop and think about. You know, you hadn't thought about, you know. So she told us what the costs were. And everybody's like, you got to pay for that. You know, so it just was very eye opening. So I think a lot of people are beginning to and make sure they have enough money to do that as well.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. And even the options, you know, are expanding. I've seen in the last couple of years, there are companies that will help turn you into like a pod so that a tree can grow yep. from you.
0: Uh-huh. That's the green. Uh huh. Yeah.
2: Right, right. Which is, I think, appealing to a lot of people. It's appealing to me. It, it can be kind of cost prohibitive, but it, it is an option. So the options keep changing. And so I'm glad that you all keep refreshing these and having experts in to make people more aware.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know about that. And it's only when you someone in that field can really begin to talk to you about those particular things. You know, we said, what if you want to go to another state? You know, what if you're in another state? Do you want to come back here? So, I mean, there's lots of things that are, are families in another state. You're here. Do I go there? So, I mean, there's just lots of different things to think about. And when you get into a group, a small group of people, you know, a lot of the questions that people ask say, oh, I thought about that too. So it really sort of helps people understand and feel comfortable.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Before we wrap up, I'm wondering if you can speak to congregational leaders, pastors, elders, anyone that is in a position to help initiate these conversations about afterlife planning with folks, do you have just a couple of practical tips on how to make it easier to start this conversation or to at least open the dialogue so that eventually there can be a conversation where there needs to be one?
0: Again, I thought it was very crucial that our pastors were right at the beginning. They were promoting it. They were telling people. They were, now everybody likes to talk to the pastors. So when they bring it up, it's not like they avoid them. So, you know, that really helped. But, you know, to preach sermons about it, that helped too. We usually have one Sunday, usually the last Sunday in June. We call it planning ahead Sunday. And that's sort of time we sort of renew and, you know, reinvite people to think about and to become involved with the sessions. But it has to begin with the leadership. It has to. And if you have officers, if you have, you know, your praise and worship singers, you know, your trustees, we have trustees, we have stewards, it is encouraged. Your ministerial staff, your leaders, because then your ministry heads to begin. And I'm not saying everybody has done that. But I would say that's where you need to, because that's where the reach out goes. And please make sure all demographics are included. Young adults, make sure men, make sure all people, you know, we also saw that we were missing the 30s and 40s. We had that 50, 60, 70, but we that 20, to 40, and eh, they were missing. So make sure and to understand if you're planning, make sure you have all those demographics that can help you plan. Because it's one thing for you to sit and say, well, maybe they'll like this. Maybe we should do this for them as opposed to having them a part of it. And again, start with small groups. Start with a small group and get people engaged with it. Get people where they can begin to talk about it. They can begin to talk to their peers. And then, you know, I would say get a group, you know, that's going to sort of help do the ministry as opposed to just say, okay, you're the ministry person. I mean, I know I'm sort of the coordinator. I keep training. In fact. That's part of what we're going to do in the fall. We're training people. There are people who have approached me and said, I want to be a planning ahead care navigator. So train people. They have to go through the process themselves. But to me, that's a real testament that now it's become normalized. And people say, I want to talk to people about death. I'm like, okay, that's the real sign (laughs) that we've accomplished. But we've had some people have indicated that. And now we've began to take it outside. We've taken it to other churches now. So part of our planning here at ministry is taking it to other churches and helping them get started. So I guess the tips I would say is make sure your leadership goes through it and is a part of it. And then make sure all demographics are part of the planning team.
2: I do also want to ask if people want to learn more about you or follow up, how can they do that? Where should they go to learn more about you and your work that you're doing?
0: My name is again, Reverend Sabrina Gray, and you can email me at S S in Sam, B as in boy, W as in water, the word grace, grace 7 at gmail.com. You can certainly get in contact with me that way.
2: Phenomenal. And are there any social media pages or websites folks should check out as well?
0: No, no. But I thank you for asking that because we need to do that because you're about the second, third person has <laughs> asked me. And when I get my group back together for September, I'm going to ask someone to get us social media page. Thank you, Ben, for reminding me of that.
1: Yep, and We'll make sure to put Reverend Gray's email address in the show notes, along with an article that was written about their ministry that is available. And if anything further comes out, she can share that with us and we'll share it with you. So, Reverend Gray, thank you so much for all of that. Your teaching is definitely coming out (laughs) through this, and you are a gifted educator, and I appreciate that. So thank you for your ministry, your perseverance in that ministry. And just setting an example for other people in congregations to not only, you know, deal with those specific situations about end of life, but also just enjoying life because we think about what's most important. So thank you so much for your time today and thank you for your ministry.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.
2: So that was a really rich conversation, and I thought Reverend Gray approached it. I mean, of course, this is what she does, but she approached it very gracefully and wonderfully. And I'm wondering, you know, Matt, what was resonating with you most as you were engaged in the conversation and as you're reflecting back on it now?
1: Well, like I talked about in the intro, you know, this is something that wasn't really on my radar. So I just appreciate how this congregation was able to take something so important that a lot of people really didn't want to talk about and over time turned it into something that is just an open conversation in the congregation itself. And it was just interesting to hear, you know, not only is there the planning aspect for end-of-life care, but how it changes how you live in the moment. That, you know, some of you may be familiar with the Latin phrase, memento mori, remember you die, and sounds kind of grim, but the the point behind that is, live every day knowing that at some point your life is going to come to an end. So, you know, get the most out of life. I mean, the kind of the flip side of that is the old carpe diem, seize the day, right? You know, knowing that you're going to die, make sure you make the most of your life. And I think there's something to that, that for a congregation that can talk openly about death and dying, there may be a possibility of being able to enjoy and appreciate life that much more and appreciate the people around you.
2: I think the thing that I appreciated most about the conversation was, again, just the grace that Reverend Gray was able to bring with it. And you can tell, I think I was imagining how the people in her congregation might respond to that. You know, there wasn't really a sense of judgment in her tone. She was able to kind of sit in the heaviness and talk about why it's important what happens when we don't have these conversations in advance. But also she's able to be lighthearted enough to know that when people think of her and see her, they associate her with death, right? And they might want to avoid her. So there's like, she's able to kind of hold it all and it makes her really approachable. And, and I think that's a good lesson for us that, yes, these are serious topics, And they're going to be hard and there'll be hard moments, but we don't have to be serious and hardened ourselves all the time when we're thinking and talking about it. You know, if we understand the death and dying process and thus planning for it as a part of human existence and part of human experience in the circle of life, then it might free us up a little bit to take ourselves slightly less seriously while also giving this topic the importance, you know, and at times even urgency that it deserves. And so I really appreciated the way I felt that was modeled in our conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also the aspect of it that you're not really doing this for you. You're doing this for your loved ones. That this is something that is so important because if there are unanswered questions and you're not there to represent yourself, then what is going to represent you? And so it's taking a burden off of your family and your loved ones, or maybe even friends, just depending on your situation. But it's taking the burden off of them of how to figure out what to do in the instance that you would not be able to make decisions for yourself. Yeah, and another thing that I was really interested in with this interview was, again, the model of how to get something done in a congregation. That it took perseverance— It took everyone being on board, including the senior clergy, and actually using the topic from the pulpit. It took understanding reluctance on the part of some people and just taking time. It took time. It took, she said, years, really, before they could create a culture. And so I think that's a good reminder that things don't move quickly in any organizations, and especially in congregations, that sometimes change can take a long time. But if you have the right people on board, if you have the right perseverance, and you have the buy-in of the leadership of the community, you can make things happen. And so I think even if having a ministry about end-of-life care is not something that you want to make front and center priority for your congregation, you know, think about what other things might be. What is the thing that maybe you want to be known for? We had a congregation a number of years ago that came to us for resources around marriage ministry. And said, we want to be known as the congregation that can help heal marriages and can help heal hurting partners. And I thought that was just a neat vision to have. So, of course, you're going to have all the other foci around all of the other aspects of congregational life. But is there something in particular that your congregation thinks is important enough that you want it to be kind of the primary thing that you're known for and that you want to offer to your congregants and really to even your community? That it's possible to become known in a community, and maybe people don't come worship with you on Sunday morning, but they come and be a part of another ministry that you're doing on the evenings or on Saturdays or what have you. That your congregation really knows how to do this well. And I think this is a good model of how you can make that kind of thing happen.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that really excites me about what you just said and the potential I see when conversations begin to happen more and more around death and dying is the ability to open up additional conversations. It's difficult to have conversations that feel tough or uncomfortable, but when we can start regularly talking about strategizing for planning about something you know, like death and dying, or healing marriages, even like, I think as we have more of those hard conversations, it opens the door for further conversations, further truth to be explored. And then you begin to establish a culture in which you can share more freely, bring more of yourself into the space and know that you'll be held. You'll also be held accountable, but you'll be held as well. And I think that there's a beauty and a richness to congregational life that happens when we can exist with that level of openness, grace, and accountability in it. And so I see that as the potential side effects, maybe, of having these conversations and getting comfortable with them.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point, Ben. There's just something to that about remembering that life is messy. And so being a congregation where you can embrace the messiness of life and talk openly about it, whatever aspect you want to focus on, but making sure it's a place where people can come and find grace when they talk about the difficulties of fearing end of life or difficulties in their marriage or difficulties with mental health issues, So being a place where those things can be talked about openly and addressed so that you don't have to feel like you're the outlier because you're struggling with something, but you can come and be embraced. Yeah, that's great.
2: So as we think about resourcing for this particular topic and episode, we have several resources that were named in the episode itself that Reverend Gray dropped. But what did you want to highlight during this time, Matt?
1: Yeah, we'll highlight the ones that she brought in a few minutes, but there was another one that I mentioned, Patrick Rieke, the director of chaplaincy up here at Parkview Health in Northeast Indiana, Allen County. When he did the series for us, he talked about a book by Atul Gawande called Being Mortal. And essentially, Atul Gawande is a doctor Uh, that firsthand saw a lot of these issues happening around end-of-life care. And so he basically just wrote a book about it. So the book is just about his experiences with being a doctor in end-of-life situations. And I think he even follows a hospice nurse at some point. I'm not sure which one came first, whether the book or the documentary, but there is a frontline PBS documentary, same title and same topic, that you can find on YouTube. So we'll post the link in YouTube. It's a 54-minute, relatively short film on this topic as well. And so, you know, the film might be a good thing to watch just to see if you think the topic is something that you would be interested in. And then maybe you could view it with other members or groups of your congregation. Maybe use the book as a small group tool for people to read through and then discuss chapter by chapter. But I just think it's a really good tool to begin thinking about these issues and it'll highlight more of the specificity around these issues.
2: Yeah, I think that's phenomenal. Anytime we can highlight the particulars of an issue, especially when it's complicated and, again, at times hard as planning for death, I think it's important. So I'm glad you highlighted that resource. One of the resources that I want to highlight is called Dem Dry Bones, Preaching Death and Hope. And this is a book that is not quite dated, but it's a little older. It came out in 2012 by Reverend Luke A. Powry. And he is an acclaimed homiletician. And in this book, he is trying to root preaching, particularly in the African-American context, into Ezekiel chapter 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones. And his claim is that when we aren't able to talk about and face death in our preaching, in our sermons, in our worship, then we also aren't able to talk about and face and embrace hope. And so he is kind of giving a homiletical framework for integrating death in the context of death into each and every Sunday sermon, and in doing so, allowing us to find ways to kind of seek out and embrace hope anew. And so I think for any pastor or clergy member that sees themselves having to talk about and address death and dying, which It's probably every clergy member out there. This could be a good book and provide a good framework for a sermon you might have to do around death or just framework for the theology and thinking around what it means to hold both death and hope simultaneously. So check out Dem Dry Bones, Preaching Death and Hope.
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing that, Ben. It's always important to root it in our faith commitments, right? Absolutely, absolutely. For those that don't know, Ben, what is homiletics?
2: I understand homiletics to be the theory and practice of preaching.
1: So, meaning that if he is a homiletician, he is someone who is very practiced at preaching and writing sermons. So, for those of you who are not pastors and don't know homiletics, and in fairness, we had to look it up. (laughs) We kind of knew what it meant based on context. But anyway, so, but no, it's a great tool and resource for thinking about how to root this topic in scripture and how to think about it in terms of writing and and preaching sermons.
2: As we think back to the resources that came up in the interview itself, were there any in particular, Matt, that you wanted to shine a spotlight on?
1: They were all good resources. And listening to Reverend Gray, she talked about how they used specifically the Conversations Project, Five Wishes, and the short documentary Extremis.
2: Yeah, yeah. And Extremis is the one I think that really caught my eye In watching the trailer, I haven't watched it yet, (laughs) disclaimer, but I think what's appealing about Extremis is that it offers a view of the process of death and dying in a way that feels extraordinarily intimate without you having to go through it yourself with your family. And so you're following other families as they're having the hard conversations with medical professionals, as they're sitting bedside with their loved one who is approaching the end of their life and having to make these plans. You can see the grief, the emotion coming up along with kind of the practical planning that is taking place. And I think it's the raw intimacy that this documentary is able to capture is very telling. And for those that haven't had to go through this yet, I think it offers a glimpse and highlights segment of the interview in which Reverend Gray and I were talking about what it's like for families that have to be in the moment trying to make these decisions versus those that have made them on the front end. And so if you just want to kind of take a sneak peek and imagine what it might be like and why it's so important to have these conversations before you get to the ICU, this is a good documentary to give you that sneak peek and that glimpse. And so I would encourage you all just to go to Netflix and check it out or at least watch the trailer and then decide for yourself if you have the emotional space to dive in a little deeper.
1: Yeah, and if you find yourself touched by any of these resources, and especially the documentaries, think about your chaplains. If you know someone who is a chaplain, you know, non-COVID world, I'd tell you to give them a hug, but Mm, it may not be the best idea, especially because they're in hospitals a lot. But, you know, send them a text, give them a note of encouragement or a word of encouragement, because chaplains deal with these things day in and day out, every day. I know some personally myself. And they really could use your encouragement because what they do, uh, people in hospice care as well, they really could use your support and just some encouragement for the difficult shepherding that they do for people who are at end of life.
2: Absolutely. And so many times as a chaplain, you know, you're walking with a family or a person through a situation and then you don't ever get to see them again. And so you don't necessarily get to hear about or know the impact of your work. And so if you have a chance to just let a chaplain know the impact that they made for you or your family members. Just take a few seconds or a minute and share that. It truly does mean the world. And it it can be like a ray of light when you're walking through these dark corridors day in and day out, just doing the ministry you feel you're called to do. So, yeah, I I affirm that completely, Matt.
1: And in that vein, shout out to my friend, John Swanson. You do good work, my friend. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. John, John, John. We should have him as a guest at some point. We've
2: talked about this before. We're coming for you, John. Be ready.
1: Absolutely. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. As always, we want to thank Jaden Lee for original music and editing. He makes us sound amazing. Uh, We also want to thank the Lilly Endowment. Their generosity funds the Center for Congregations and makes everything that we do possible. So we really appreciate their backing and their faith in us as we serve congregations. We'd also like to invite you to follow us on
2: social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the Center for Congregations. You can find information about upcoming education events, resource highlights, and congregational stories so you are aware of the good work that's taking place in congregations all across Indiana.
1: We'd also love to hear from you if you want to email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. And if you've listened this deep in the episode, we would love for you to send Memento Mori to podcast at centerforcongregations.org just so we know that anyone listens to us for this long.
2: And finally... Take a moment, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That is the quickest way, most efficient way to ensure that others who might benefit from these conversations can find our work. So just click that five-star button
1: and keep it moving. We really appreciate you listening. And until next time, I'm Matt Burke. And I'm Ben Tapper. Take care, y'all.